Hello and welcome to Living in a Time of Dying, the podcast about living in a time of global pandemic, social upheaval and injustice, climate catastrophe, and mass extinction. This podcast is a companion to the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, co-authored by myself and Taoist mystic, Toltec I Ching master, wisdom teacher, and my dear friend, William Douglas Horden. I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk, a writer, philosopher, soul mentor, perpetual student, and mother of possums. In this podcast, I and my guests will engage with a selection of chapters from the book to explore the questions, the conundrums, paradox, and fractal edges of this thing called living. This is an invitation to commune and feel together the weight of these times with all the grief, rage, love, and hope that it arouses within us so that together we may dream a new world into being. Welcome, dear listeners, to what may well be the last episode of the Living in a Time of Dying podcast, at least for a while. Today, I have with me returning to the podcast, my co-author, William Douglas Horden, and this time we are going to be discussing one of his books published in 2014 titled Facing Light, Preparing for the Moment of Dying. Welcome back to the podcast, William, and thanks for joining me to talk about this quite compelling little book of yours. Thank you, Megan, for the invitation. Very happy to be here. And I say little because it's actually a thin book. It's only 53 pages, although the material in it is quite weighty. You know, in it, you discuss not so much the story of your own personal dying. You sort of breeze over that in the beginning, but you talk about kind of what you brought back with you from that experience, what you remember from that experience. And so for the benefit of our listeners, I've heard this story a couple of times now, but I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about what happened. What do you remember that precipitated your dying? Okay. Well, first of all, I should, uh, I should say that it isn't the easiest thing in the world to talk about. Hmm. And I don't know exactly why that is. It seems like it's it's a very private thing. <laughs> and, um, and we've kind of talked about that before, you and I. So I'm glad to try and uh, share it. I, I think the reason that I've written about it is because it's easier than talking about it in person. Hmm. For, it's just um, a personal quirk of mine, I think. But uh, we'll give it a whirl here. Um, it was 20 years ago now. So uh, it was in 2003. I was 53 at the time. And I didn't know that I had a congenital um, defect in an artery. And um, so at age 53, one day, it just decided that it had had enough and closed down. My wife and I, Lenore, we were just getting ready to go for a drive or something, and suddenly I kind of found myself sitting on the floor in the living room, leaning against the couch, and uh, she came in and 
she didn't like what she saw. And so she called right away 911 and they came out very quickly. The fire first and then the uh, EMTs. We lived out in the country and so you know, it took a few minutes for them to get there. They determined that I was having a massive heart attack and they rushed me to the hospital, which was about 20 minutes away. And um, <clears throat> so on the way there, they kept asking me, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? And I kept saying, no, I'm not in any pain whatsoever. And, but I could, uh, I could already feel myself slipping away. It was as if everything was at a distance. Uh, people talking, the sound of the siren, you know, which was going on. And they were in a hurry to get me to the hospital. And um, I found myself just very uh, oddly calm and uh, actually kind of bemused that there was such a fuss going on about something that didn't seem all that important. And uh, I found myself, you know, in the emergency room on the table, and uh, they said, uh, you're, you're having a serious heart attack. We're going to try to intervene. And I said, well, good, that sounds like a plan. And uh, they were doing things, whatever they were doing. And they, again, asking me how much pain I was in. I continued to tell them I wasn't in any pain. And then uh, suddenly I noticed that uh, my breathing had stopped. And... Uh, Pretty quickly after that, I, I realized that uh, I, my heart had stopped. And I was, uh, I was curious. I, th I thought, shouldn't I be upset? <laughs> shouldn't I be worried? Uh, and then I, I very distinctly heard a... Um, as they say, a voice, you know, as if it was coming from behind, although I was laying horizontal on this table. Uh, it seemed to me that I was more vertical and that something behind me was uh, was speaking and uh, very, very clearly said, uh, all right, <clears throat> you've done this many times. Here we go. And with that, um, it was as if I was shot out of a catapult. But then there, there was this great upwelling as I was leaving. Uh, uh, a tremendous sense of uh, gratitude. And I could hear myself say, you know, not out loud, but uh, what a glorious creation. And uh, with that, I just wasn't, uh, I wasn't attached to my body anymore. So that's, that's what happened, you know, on that level. We can discuss, you know, what after that happened, but that's, that at least gets us started, I guess. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I, you know, I've I've read through the book a couple of times uh, this week, and I honestly wish that we had the time to go through page by page and talk about each of the pieces of wisdom that that come through those pages um, because they are so rich. But you you sort of elucidate uh, in in part one of the book the sort of uh, scheme, I'll call it, of, of what you experienced, of, of it seems what is from your perspective through that experience of, um, you call them the material and immaterial spirits. Right. That, uh, that have a relationship right to the body and that exist all within what you call the sphere of universal communion. Right. Manifesting as creation, as what we know, uh, as what we experience as manifest form or quote-unquote reality. Right. Agreed. Um, so I would say that um, if we were to backtrack a little bit, then when I was uh, just about turning 20, I met uh, my teacher. Who was a who was a Taoist priest, uh, an I Ching master, and so for two years uh, he uh, introduced me, you know, uh, strenuously <laughs> to meditation and to the to Taoist practices of um, what we might call um, returning to the One. And that would uh, that would be a, a one way to think about it. Um, it would also in, include uh, exercises like um, from the uh, secret of the golden flower and things like that, which um, which kind of involve this uh, technique of uh, trying to be aware of uh, pure awareness and really in, uh, as a means of preparing for when you don't have a body and that you're, um, you're actually comfortable with that, uh, with, the, with those feelings and with that, uh, with that experience. And so in the Taoist tradition, these are called Hun and Po, and it's like the higher soul and the lower soul. But in more Western terms, I, I use the words uh, immaterial spirit and material spirit because those seemed a little bit more accessible. But um, the immaterial, uh, and, and, the, and it's also a, a, a three-pronged um, existence because there's also the body. And so the material spirit is is all is the sum and, uh, of of all of the body's experiences, but it's not the body itself. And so um, sometimes that's called consciousness. And in some Western traditions, they would call they would call the the spirit of the body. They would call that the soul, mm. and then they would call the higher soul the spirit. And that that was more um, subtle or refined, and so 
you know, there's there's different words, there's different names for these um, experiences and states of being. So the uh, the material spirit, I think Jung, uh, you know, called that that aspect of the soul, the the lower soul, the material spirit, the personality. Hmm. We can think of it as uh, consciousness, the in Taoism and um, uh, and Chan. And, you know, it's, they think of that as the sixth sense because you have the five senses, but then the summation of those five senses is consciousness, which is itself a, the sixth sense. But essentially, it's the memory of, of all of the experiences that we live through, in, in, uh, that the body lives through in this lifetime. And those experiences are not necessarily all conscious because our human consciousness really has a difficult time staying focused <laughs> on the present moment and what's being experienced but but even so um, our uh, our material spirit is um, much more receptive to its experiences and its surroundings and it it experiences a lot of things unconsciously that the conscious mind isn't aware of. So, um, so this memory uh, that the uh, that the material spirit has is very, very deep, very profound. But it, but it includes, of course, uh, the conscious sense of self and the conscious personality um, that's associated with the body, and and the memory of the life. Yes. And yes. I, I don't mean to interrupt. No, I'm, no, no, not at all. What is the, what would you say is the relationship then of what you're calling the material spirit or the, the soul, that conscious memory? I, I, I tend to think of it as the little me. I think of it as like the little me is that like encamp, encapsulated uh, sense of, of myself, my whole system, this particular life that is mine versus what I call the big I, or what you're here calling the immaterial spirit, which is this kind of a connection to um, a, a larger, more encompassing spirit, rather than this kind of more uh, particular soul. What is the relationship between those two? Um, you know, I think I've, I've heard uh, one version of the last words of Plotinus as he was dying, where... Uh, the little God returns to the greater God. And so I, th I think that there's that, you know, that sense of reverence uh, for even, even for the little me <laughs> is, is a, as a spiritual being. And um, the way that I have experienced it is this, that, that the immaterial spirit never actually leaves the 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 one the the universal um uh, the sphere of universal communion which we can talk about huh? but that it um uh, it's oftentimes described as carrying a the spark of the divine fire and that uh, it brings that uh 
you know, to the body when it's born and implants that divine spark within the body. And that divine spark is what grows into the material spirit. And that spark is also like the resonance between the between the, the material spirit and it and and the immaterial spirit. In in other words, it's it's like calls the, the material spirit back to the immaterial spirit. And so on, in the larger picture, I think that the immaterial spirit um, does this over and over and over again through many lifetimes. And it gives birth to many, many lower souls or, or material spirits. And uh, so my teacher would say, this is, how, this is how new souls are made. But in terms of, in terms of practice, this, this leads us into the, um, the realm of uh, Taoist alchemy, which is, um, you know, the, the effort to create the philosopher's stone or the, the uh, what's sometimes called the immortal spirit body. Um, in, in, in the little book that, that I wrote here, I call it the immortalist. Mm-hmm. And that this is, this is the uh, product the result of uniting the material and the immaterial spirit while we're still, while the body is still alive. And this is really the essence of, of uh, much of the Taoist practices, I understand it, as I was taught. But the, that, that union or reunion of the, of the lower soul and the higher soul is, um, produces this conscious awareness during one's lifetime um, of, uh, of uh, the, the immortal awareness that moves between lives. Hmm. So I want to go back to the sphere of universal communion, okay. which is such a beautiful um, image. It's such a beautiful string of words. Um, and I'm wondering if you can describe how you experience the sphere of universal communion. Well, I had never thought of myself as a sphere of light, and um, but but that's what I experienced. And but light here has been used for for I think for millennia as a way to describe pure awareness. Um, or spiritual awareness. And so it's like aware light, but it but for some reason the the experience seems to be that um, again, you know I can only speak for me. it's it's that it's experienced as a sphere, as an orb. And um, So after, um, after leaving my body, then I found myself in this space that appeared to be um, very clearly, I was, on, I was inside of a sphere of aware light, of, of 
of a, of a, of a aware light. Um, now, how I how I knew that, I can't exactly say, but because I couldn't see the edges of it, because it seemed it seemed pretty much infinite as far as I could tell. But it was uh, it was populated by a lot of other spheres of aware light who, um, you know, were other beings, were other beings, were other awarenesses. So again, in the, in the, uh, in the way that I've been uh, taught, the, the immaterial spirit is basically understanding, where the material spirit is basically memory. Mm. And the immaterial spirit brings the material spirit back to the to the sphere of universal communion, if if it can, if it if they are united. And and um, typically, a lot of people don't do that. Don't unite them when their uh, when their body is alive. But at the moment of death, um, there is a percentage of people that that they actually awaken. Let us say at that moment to the union and and um so if you were to think of yourself in this moment megan you know as a sphere of awareness that that basically has two elements one is understanding and one is memory it's actually kind of a stripped down <laughs> essential experience of selfhood of selfness and um and when memory is expanded you know to to include all that it includes and when understanding especially the the understanding of the immaterial spirit of the of the immortal presence let us say we could also use the words mortal presence and immortal presence you know, or mortal awareness, immortal awareness. At the at, at, while um, while the body is alive, but being in in the in the sphere of universal communion with all of these other beings who are existing in this eternal, timeless place, because they have brought their own material spirits and and their own and their own immaterial spirit is present and what i found was that that there's a kind of physicality there in a strange way and that if 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 uh, if another sphere of awareness was to touch my sphere touch me as a sphere then immediately and this is why it's communion and immediately all of their memories and understanding would pass into me. Mm. And all of my memories and understanding would pass into them. And it was an instant, almost instantaneous communion of, of presence, of um, understanding and memory. So the way that I'm conceiving of this is like a kind of, um, almost like a kind of infinite reciprocity of... Uh, of of memory and understanding being kind of traded back and forth in a certain sense, uh, 
and and that that language is not perfect because uh, I think it's too uh, separative. It's too kind of like binary. Um, but but like that that we live in this realm, right? So the material the material spirit right. collects memories and then takes those memories. Uh, trades them essentially with the immaterial spirit and the immaterial spirit trades in in this kind of understanding of what is this kind of wisdom of what is and that there is this constant reciprocity that is going back and forth and then as you're speaking that also is being traded between between beings between uh experiences shall we say of as you're saying aware light right and i think um what it seems to me is that um that the immaterial spirit is attempting to get a a, a firmer and clearer immediate grasp of of the experience of mortal life hmm. and that that then is brought back into the engine of creation so to speak back into the to the sphere of universal communion and that that and that's why each lifetime is so important because it's it's um it's returning as you're well aware i know but just for the for the sake of your the listeners the 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 general uh, schema is that that um existence moves from the one and then emanates into a couple of different strata, uh, pure idea, uh, pure soul or psyche, and then into the world of matter or nature. And that that, that emanation, uh, uh, in a sense, is, feels like it's moving th into more dense materialization. And that... And that then, uh, and that's a given because here we are. <laughs> that has already happened to me. Here I am. But my job is to return this material being back to the one. And so, and and that's that's and so when we say memory, we're really we mean experience, but we mean the coherent. Yeah, the, the the coherent co continuity of experience, and but that doesn't necessarily have meaning that is that is understandable to the material uh, spirit in the larger sense, and that so the meaningfulness of it, the understanding that places it within a greater context of timelessness and uh, and its place within creation. Uh, that comes from the immaterial spirit. Mm -hmm. And so the implication, I mean, one of the implications, let's say, of this, as I'm hearing it, is that, you know, as I think about living my own life and um, my own very human life and doing my best, as they say, uh, to to refine my relationship to that understanding, to refine my relationship um, both to soul, to, to, to the material spirit, to my material spirit, but also to the immaterial spirit. Um, 
And then also, as I'm moving through my lived experience, the, the experience of my whole system, um, collecting whatever that memory is, moving through the experience of the collective world that, that we live in, which we don't always, you know, we don't choose necessarily uh, what is happening around us or what befalls us. But that as I move through my life in that reciprocal uh, engagement of memory and understanding, that I am, I am called to intentionally cultivate both. Yes. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. That um, a, a lot of a lot of the distress that we experience um, in life is the result of traditions that are handed down to us and asceticism, for example, you know, arose in a time when people had very short lifetimes and there was a great deal of chaos and, um, um, and suffering that really is very difficult for us to imagine at this stage of civilization. But people would, you know, if they lived to 30 or 35, that was... That was a lot, and so there was a there was a, a real um, kind of disgust and dread of life and earthly existence, and bodily existence, and uh, we st we still see that um, in many many places, uh, where religion and spiritual traditions have handed that down, and which, in my opinion, results in a a lack of respect and honoring for this um, for this wonderful gift of being alive in a living organism that is so vast and uh, and uh, mysterious that we have a we have a difficult time uh, uh, conceptualizing it, but under the best of circumstances, we can experience its presence. Um, you know, Plato called it the, uh, the anima mundi, the world soul, that uh, everything is uh, connected and it has intelligence, that this is, a, this is an actual living being that we are uh, within and part of. And so um, if we think that um, we've gone to a great deal of trouble to get here, and uh, to, uh, to, to find our way to uh, you know, what, the, what the Sufis called the beloved, that, that we can see that all of this is like, um, it's like a, a great mother uh, cradling us. It's like a, a beloved uh, being that uh, showers us constantly. With um, with its uh, loving kindness, we come out of the womb, and there's air, and there's food, and there's the resources to have clothes and and homes. And if if we can set aside all of the problems for a moment of civilization and culture, and all of the grief and all of the suffering that goes on, and if we can remove ourselves from that for a few minutes, and look at the sheer um, grandeur of uh, being 
a, uh, a living being within a living being that, um, that we can let go of, um, of everything that is not present. And if we can step into, into the reality of all that is present at a given moment, so that at a sunrise or a sunset or a sudden storm or, or, or just a moment of a, you know, an infant's first smile or, uh, just the very uh, the very perfection of creation itself and not what human beings are doing with it because that is a separate issue and that is very dependent upon the historical era into which you are born and you know we, we sometimes don't think about it that oh I've been born into many historical eras and uh I will be again, and uh, if that is if that is what I wish wish to do, and so uh, that reciprocal thing that you're talking about, that's moving back and forth between the immaterial and the material. There's moments of insight, and uh, for people that are uh, serious and and uh, and disciplined their life becomes a, a series of uh, uh, a, a, a path of con continual revelation. And, and presumably what you're speaking about here is, you know, the, the subtitle of your book is Preparing for the Moment of Dying. And you spoke a little bit in the beginning about um, your studies with Master Kai um, as part of that preparation for yourself. And I'm wondering if you can speak about what you see is the preparation that allowed you to be able to um, experience your dying fully and bring that awareness back and write it in a book like this. And also how, if you can speak to listeners, you know, how, how is one to, or how can one prepare for the moment of dying since it's something we're all going to experience? I think the root of it has to do with uh, what Gurdjieff called self-remembering that we we have to start by by trying to reconnect with the ecstatic being that we started out this lifetime with that if we can uh try to go back to um those moments when uh, we were very very young and we played and we laughed for no reason. Mm. We were happy for no reason. That, um, you know, as they say, you know, the infant is like a bundle of joy because everybody that sees the this infant is suddenly happy because it's almost like a contagious thing. So what is it that we come into this world with? And and uh, to to be to to really take into consideration that that this thing at essence that I I call me is actually a spark of the divine, hmm. and that that is a firm foundation that we can that we can begin with and begin to experience ourselves as 
a spark of the divine, then to see that all other things in the world, and I think this goes to even rocks and plants and, of course, animals and, of course, other people, but the world itself and the stars and every, you know, that everything uh, in one form or another carries a spark of this divine. And so now, now it's as if I'm in a, I'm in a, a, a hall of mirrors where I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that, that divine everywhere that I go and see it looking back at me. And, and so my question to myself then becomes, how do I, how do I treat that? You know, and not how am I being treated? Because, again, that's, that, that is not in my control. But how do I treat everything that I encounter and as a divine being? And, um, and so this, this kind of moves us away from the, um, the materialistic uh, worldview that, that kind of gets pushed on us in this historical era that we live in here right now. And... Um, as one person said, uh, you know, that, that, that worldview tries to treat us as if we are nothing but talking meat. And that disrespect for, for, the, for the lifetime, the living being, the, the, the spiritual being, is, is profound. And, uh, and that's, that kind of desecration then means that that tree is only dead matter and that that animal is dead matter and um and so and so nothing is sacred and so everything can be exploited and desecrated so that viewpoint that that begins with 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 the desecration of self it's externalized immediately there there's absolutely there's no there, there's no time lag between mm-hmm. between that sense of 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 worthlessness mm-hmm. <laughs> meaninglessness and the meaninglessness of everything else and so um to recognize that that's a kind of indoctrina- indoctrination and brainwashing that um began when uh, we were too young to know that we could reject it and that we had the right to reject things that did not sound true to us and that did not resonate with us. And that in some ways we have to reparent ourselves, we have to retrain our own self to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what what exactly... you know, what is that thought implying? Or even what a lot of times we do is we try and say, well, whose voice am I hearing <laughs> that sentence in? You know, was that a teacher? Was that a parent? Was that a, a friend? Was, you know, but why, why is that sentence echoing inside this, uh, 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 this uh, habit mind? So, um, most spiritual traditions and most devotional practices 
are based around the idea that I I have to um, I have to look at my consciousness as a conditioned state of, of training that mm-hmm. I did not take part in particularly because um, it it happened when I was uh, younger and vulnerable. Mm. It takes intentional, uh, in my experience, intentional like work to untrain it or to train a different uh, a different narrative. Correct. Than that one that has been was seeded so so early. I agree completely, and I think that, and I, I think that we we be, we have to really recognize that a lot of these uh, things that are you know they used to say well I have these old tapes in my head you know you say but but in other words these are habits these are habit thoughts habit emotions. And they they come unbidden. Mm-hmm. They are not see. So if if I say to somebody, well, uh, what is what is four plus eight? And they go twelve. And you say, yeah, because that's a conscious thought. <laughs> see, you actually produced that thought conscious. You created that thought on purpose. But the other thoughts that are going on and on and on cyclically, and that you 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 follow them out, the the thought will start to come, and then you'll follow the thought into its own labyrinth, and then if it's it, so convincing because it seems to come from nowhere, so it must it's it's like the backdrop that we take for granted. Right, but but if it only happened once, you could you mm-hmm. could excuse it. <laughs> But it, but it, if if you're going over the same track ten, for the ten thousandth time, mm. and you know where it ends, <laughs> yeah, and and what it leads to, and the sense of distress, in one form or another, in the sense of unease, and 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 that it uh, it actually is is defeating the joy of life. Mm. Yeah. So, so the first, you know, pretty much the first stage of most um, self-realization practices, as far as I know, is that 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 habit mind has to be quieted. It it needs to be interrupted, uh, consciously interrupted uh, for an extended period of time. And so one of the when, you know, so you, you, there's like uh, mantras and koans, and so there's 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 the techniques that are used to interrupt mm-hmm. the habit mind, and so like a koan, they would say, well, you know, does uh, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? See, and so and so now you you you're not supposed to answer it; you're supposed to focus on it twenty four seven for weeks and months and years until until something shifts but if you're focusing on does a dog have buddha nature or you're focusing on a mantra that the guru gave you or something see and but that's the only thing you're consciously concentrating on 24/7 see in, in every free moment when you, you 
a it's a tall order in 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 the modern era. I have to say, when uh, when we're so used to having a million different things running through our our field of vision all the time, to focus on on a, on a koan like that, um, it's a very different way of the mind thinking than this like modern um, you know technological. Right. Well, yeah. When you're right, when you're actively doing something, then your your habit mind doesn't intrude. Yes, to have it embodied is very helpful. See, I think yes. Right. And it, so you're you're not you're not doing the this this these techniques when you're actively engaged in doing something because that's not when the habit mind rears its head. Mm. It's it's only when in in you know in the relaxed state kind of it's a default position where the mind begins to go back over things over and over. That's where these techniques are really used. And um, and there's you know there's a simpler one which is just uh, just saying enough over and over and over again to oneself. And it's a it's a thought blocker. It's an attempt to simply quiet the habit mind. And after two, three, four months of this, a person generally finds that their thoughts have quieted down and that there's a, that they're now able to actually hear original thoughts, purposeful thoughts, consciously created thoughts. And so there's an old saying, you know, that says you 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 want to uh, you want to eradicate the the clouded mind. You don't want to eradicate the shining mind. Mm. So we're we're trying to you know we're trying to pu- push away the clouds of habit so that the sun of of uh, uh, true awareness, pure awareness, can shine through and uh, inspire us uh, to to um, participate in the world in a spontaneous way that's in harmony and balance with uh, with the. Uh, as you said, with what is. Mm, Beautiful. I want to pivot in our last few moments to some more uh, practical matters in relation to death. Mm -hmm. Firstly, I've asked you this before, but for the benefit of our listeners, uh, are you afraid of dying or of death? No, I think... um... I think the way that I say it in the the book, you know, is... uh, those of us that have died and come back um, just don't uh, can't can't imagine um, being afraid. Yeah. It's it's. Um, I think medical science, you know, is 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 uh, bringing more and more people back from from the from the brink. And uh, I've heard folks say the same thing that it just seems like this this was this is just the most natural and easy thing. And uh, but it but it isn't like um, I wanted to come back or didn't want to come back. You know, for me, my training was, no, just absolutely let go. You want to be like a drop of water that's that's dropped, returned back to the ocean, and you dissolve back into the ocean. And that's that return to the one. Hmm. And 
um, then for some reason you're you're pulled back into this world and you go, well, okay, that was all intro. That was pretty interesting. Not done yet. <laughs> Not done yet. And but but uh, but I'll be I'll be uh, I'll be glad to uh, do that again. I'll be glad to experience that again. So mm-hmm. no. No, it's it's not uh, it's not frightening. What 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 is what is what is frightening is not not to not to be aware of of the of the higher soul, not to be aware of the mm-hmm. immaterial, and to and, and to not try you know, not to focus on on uh, on experiencing the understanding and the insights that it brings, mm-hmm. and the sense of peace that it brings. Quick follow up. Uh, in the few moments that we have left. Mm -hmm. And by quick follow-up, I mean there's no quick follow-up to this. I texted you a couple weeks ago because I was in a a state uh, having uh, suffered a loss recently, a couple losses actually recently, and and I had just come from a memorial service for a dear friend. And um, And I wrote to you that, you know, that I... You know, I think about death a lot. I we wrote a book about it, um, and I, I feel I feel grief deeply. And I've always kind of accepted death as part of life, right? In a in a, in a very kind of like spiritual, philosophical way. And I came to this place of just intense anger at the fact of death, intense mm-hmm. anger that we who are left behind have to be left behind, you know, that we have to experience that loss. And so I'm curious, in our last conversation on the podcast, you mentioned that you had a friend who passed away from COVID. And I also know that, you know, that you lost your sister in the last several years or one of your sisters. And so I'm curious if you can say a few words about how you respond to death or the possible you know, death of your friends and family, loved ones, knowing what you know and having experienced dying yourself. When my friend died, um, a noise came up out of my chest and through my throat that uh, I had never heard my body make before. Um, When my sister died... uh, I couldn't speak for a couple of days. I just was uh, overcome with grief. To me, to not honor every life and to not recognize its sacredness it would be a great betrayal. There's many things that we should rage about. And uh, the loss of loved ones, the loss of things that we hold dear is a terrible thing. But that is the very reason that we are here. And that is to fully immerse ourselves in mortality and the shared mortality which is, and this is to me one of the things, why are there cultures where everybody bows to each other when they meet? Because this is a tradition where we recognize it 
everybody knows they're going to die. And yet they soldier on. <laughs> they continue with their life knowing that they're going to die. Now, they aren't holding that in the conscious thought all the time, but they know it. And this is a kind of nobility that deserves to be recognized and honored and held as sacred within each conscious being. So uh, I try to bow to everybody. Mm. To bow to that noble being that's inside that is uh, creating this memory of this lifetime and all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the grief, as well as all of the joy, all of the ecstasy, all of the sense of wonder, all of the curiosity fulfilled, all of the, all of the, you know, how do you say the, if I'm afraid to go slumming with demons, then I'll never be able to jet set with angels. <laughs> we have to be able to plumb the depths if we wish to soar to the heights. And people who try to stay in the middle and feel no highs or lows, to my mind, defeat, <coughs> excuse me, the very reason that they're here. Mm. Thank you so much for this conversation. I feel really honored. You, you know, you started at the top saying this is really hard to talk about. And so I thank you, thank you, thank you for being willing to share your story and your experience with us. And uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, Megan, it's always an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad you came back. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us in this episode of the Living in a Time of Dying podcast. If you are moved by the material discussed here, you can read or listen to more in the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, coming soon both in print and audio from booksellers everywhere. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be updated when new episodes drop. You can also find out more about my work at soulmentor.org. Until next time, remember, you are an enfoldment of the universe, showing care to itself. Everything is God. Live well die easy. In Love and Rage, I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk. Take care and be well. Mm -hmm.